Welcome to the Wild West Podcast, where today I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Patry Friedman, founder of the Seasteading Institute in San Francisco. The quick and dirty definition of seasteading is it's the idea of creating man-made islands in the ocean that house whole communities of people and function autonomously. So they have their own economies and most importantly, their own unique governing structures. This might seem like a silly idea anywhere except the Bay Area. And Friedman was actually funded to develop this concept by tech tycoon Peter Thiel. He's the founder of PayPal, he's a board member of Facebook. And so Patry sits on the board of the Seasteading Institute these days and also consults on seasteading pilot proposals around the world with the goal of creating these new offshore economic zones and experimenting with new innovative governments. The idea that if we can copy best practice legal systems from around the world and if we can do some clean slate rewrites that people opt into that are only parts of the laws initially and test them out, we can definitely improve the rate of progress of legal development. Patry also founded a seasteading-related festival 10 years ago that takes place in the San Joaquin River Delta each year. It's called Ephemerile, and it's this place where some early-stage seasteading takes place. So the event is a week long. It happens on boats and floating structures that are all tied together and anchored in a remote estuary, and it looks kind of like what you might think. It attracts alternative types who go there to party and dabble in small-scale world building. It's sort of like Burning Man on Water. Ephemerile's 10th festival wrapped up in late July, and I wrote a long article about how the event has evolved over the years, and that seemed like a perfect opportunity to talk to Patry about his view of the festival and also his current work on developing seasteading projects around the world, and then lastly, whether he thinks we might be looking at a future in which we're all, like, living on corporate island platforms that have their own rules. Patry is a fascinating guy, and I hope you guys dig our conversation. We'll get into it in just a minute, but first, this brief message. All right, we're back. Now, on to my conversation with Seasteading Institute founder, Patry Friedman. How's it going, Patry? Great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Where are, you, where are you calling from right now? I'm in the Santa Cruz Mountains, about 2,000 feet above the Bay Area with a view of the Pacific. Sitting out on my back deck enjoying nature. There's family quails running around and turkey vultures circling overhead. It's like uh, some kind of Disney kingdom out here. Nice. Yeah, so you live in Northern California. Uh, you recently left Google, I think you told me, and uh, you're working. So does that mean you're working full-time for the Seasteading Institute these days? My, I'm, I'm on the board of the Seasteading Institute, but my full-time focus is helping both seasteading and charter city projects uh, work with governments and launch experimental governance zones. Okay, gotcha. And I know that you are working on some stuff right now that you can't talk in too much detail about, but can you give kind of the broad strokes of the types of uh, projects that you're working on and consulting on at the moment, just so we have kind of a general idea? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so ephemeral grew out of my interest in experimental governance and this question of how do we get from the world of, of today, where uh, countries will often use the same laws for, for hundreds of years, to a world where people can copy the best legal systems and make up brand new legal systems and try them out. And, and it's hard because people don't want to just 
live under a brand new legal system, and, and they shouldn't. And the idea with Ephemera was maybe we could create a festival where people could try out new laws part-time. And what I'm working on now is the idea of working with governments to designate an area of the ocean or an area of the land to have somewhat different laws from the rest of the country. And then a group of people, a community or a company, uh, would go and create a floating or, or land-based real estate development there that people would move into if they wanted to, to have those, those better laws. So I'm consulting with groups around the world doing this. Got it. And so if you're consulting on if you're consulting with governments, what is the benefit to a government of creating a new zone or sort of a colony where people would live outside of that government's control? Or how does that relationship work? Yeah, that's a great question. And to start out with, I'd, I'd say that it's, it's very different from a colony in that it's, uh, it's governments that are choosing to do this. Um, you could look at China's special economic zones as an example or, uh-huh. or, uh, or at Dubai. And so the reason they do it is, well, as a programmer, it seems perfectly natural to me because when I was at Google, if you were going to roll out a change to Google's web server, y- you wouldn't roll it out for everyone at once, especially if you rewrote Google's web server from scratch. You know, you'd test it out and then maybe put it online for one out of a million users and then eventually one out of a thousand users and you'd slowly scale it up and, and test it. Uh, and so it's the same thing with, with laws. Maybe a, a country wants to try out, as China did, um, more, uh, more free market systems without changing the, the entire country. They could use zones to do that. Um, and another reason is, is corruption. So it's just really hard to root out a culture of corruption. You know, international development experts are, are finding this. And if you start with empty land and have a different group of people, say, um, a new company, create the laws and the courts and the police, the idea is that you can create a bubble of honest courts and non-corrupt officials, even in a corrupt country, and it might be easier to reform the country by creating these bubbles and moving parts of the economy into them than trying to change the entire culture of the country. It's interesting. I think that really touches on the uh, appeal of seasteading, at least to me. It's the utopian idea, right? We can do this better. We can do governance better. We can do society better if we just had a clean slate to start over. It's kind of what's inherent about some of the conversations that we hear, um, these early conversations about potentially colonizing Mars, is this idea of like, oh, we'll, we'll go and we will redo civilization, create it in our image, and it will be better than what we have now. Why should we believe that? Like, why should we believe that if we had another planet or we had more land or we had these like floating islands, these, these seasteads, that we could do it better? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question, and I think some amount of skepticism is, is great, and that it really depends what, what the stated goal is. So I'm very confident that we can make laws and governments that work better, but at the same time, I would say that those laws and governments will have many of the same problems that, that they do today, principal agent problems and coordination problems, and, you know, how do we harness individual self-interest to the collective good. Those are all just, just parts of, the, of, of being humans trying to do something together. And so as an example, you know, again, as, as a programmer, like, it, you could say, oh, you're going to rewrite this with, uh, you know, with a, you're going to rewrite this application in a different programming, programming language with a different database. How will that make it better? And as a programmer, we know, look, periodically, you can take the learnings 
that you that you've had from from writing and running an application, and you can look at new technologies, and you can build something that's better. You can't build something that's perfect. You can't break the laws of physics or the laws of computer science, but you can improve things. And furthermore, you can improve things a lot more if every now and then you start from scratch and do a full rewrite than you can by just patching existing code that uses existing libraries. I mean, you know, we would not have the technology today if everything was still written in in Fortran, um, you know, or running on MS-DOS. And so I think the idea that if we can copy best practice legal systems from around the world, and if we can do some clean slate rewrites that people opt into that are only parts of the laws initially and test them out, we can definitely improve the rate of progress of legal development. But we'll never get away from the fundamental challenges and trade-offs that happen in any government. Well, I want to get into some of those nuts and bolts with you in a little bit. But first, I was hoping you could um, go over a quick history of the Seasteading Institute. I just wanted to give people a quick sense of how this organization formed and when it started. Sure. So the history of the Seasteading Institute uh, is began with my interest in, in new countries and better systems of government uh, starting in, I'd say, about the year 2000. Um, and ephemera was actually part of the early history because I went to Burning Man and was really impressed at how much energy people put into building their own infrastructure and building this temporary thing and at the same time sort of sad that it was all all poured into something temporary that was then torn down. Mm -hmm. And as I was thinking about this question of how do you start new countries, um, I, I tied together and thought, hey, maybe you could start a festival where people went out to international waters and in boats and spent a week actually contractually living under some different legal system. And I actually put up the, the website for that, uh, you know, years before I, I got the funding to start the Seasetting Institute. Uh, and then I worked with someone named, uh, named Wayne Gramlich, who had some papers on how to do DIY seasteading using two-liter bottles for flotation. And I was really impressed at his his practicality, and so I wrote a book that I put online, basically all of the details of where do you get your energy, your water, what are the laws of the sea and the different zones. Um, so I just put it up online for free with a commenting system I wrote where anybody could comment on a paragraph, and I gave, I gave some talks. And then in late 2007, some people who worked for Peter Thiel connected us, and he was really excited about the idea and, and gave me a half-million-dollar donation to found the nonprofit, which we did in, in April of 2008. So Ephemeral was part of the genesis of this whole idea. So can you talk a little bit about what your idea was behind Ephemeral, why you started it, um, and how the first year of it actually unfolded? Yeah, so as I mentioned, Ephemeral is part of the earliest genesis of seasteading, uh, and the idea being, you know, how do we how do we make new countries? Well, we got to get people comfortable with trying out new legal systems, and maybe it's easier to do that for a week a year than to get them to move there full-time. Um, and so I, I imagine this idea of people gathering together in international waters, forming in different islands, and signing agreements about what the legal system would be for the week. And, of course, you know, we, we would acknowledge that there, uh, even in international waters, there are national laws that apply, and you know you're not you're not totally free, but I think it would be a meaningful experiment. Uh, but you know the ocean is is rough and expensive, and international waters 
you know, especially if you live in California, international waters are, there's not comfortable internationals near waters nearby like there would be in Florida, say. Uh, and so we said, all right, well, let's, let's start out uh, someplace nearby that's much easier, but is connected to the ocean. And so we picked the Sacramento Delta. This is a, a region of the Bay Area, which a lot of people don't know about. It's, it's inland on the Sacramento River, and it's almost like a, a Louisiana bayou of the Bay. Right. There are these broad, shallow rivers and all of these islands and these dilapidated piers and, and, and boat rentals. And we said, all right, we're going to go out there and, uh, and make an island. Um, and so we hired some, uh, someone named Chicken John, an, an early burner who had done art raft projects, and we rented out all the houseboats from nearby Paradise Point Marina, and we, we spent days just just hammering and drilling and putting stuff together, art projects and platforms. Uh, we were not able to anchor the platforms and the boats out in the open water. We ended up having to attach to the shore, hmm. um, you know, which was not ideal, but again, this, this whole idea here is to form a learning arc uh, of, of progress, and so it was what it was the first year. And, yeah, it was just really incredible. People came from around the world. It's, there's probably 100, 150 of us uh, to just play with this idea of, of rules and art on the water. There wasn't enough of us for there to be different islands, and, and the focus was much more on just getting floating and being able to eat and sleep rather than, uh, rather than new laws. But everyone kind of came together around the idea. Yeah, were there any new laws or new rules that first year? There weren't. That was something that, that, you know, was the explicit goal of the festival, but we were, you know, focused on sort of mere survival (laughs) and did not yet have the luxury to invest in that. And so fast forward uh, a decade since that first ephemeral. I know you haven't been to each event since, but you've been to a number of them. And uh, I just wanted to get a sense of what you feel like you've seen in terms of how the event has evolved over the years. I'd say the event, there's, there's kind of two axes of evolution, one of which has worked really well and one of which hasn't gone at all. And the two axes are the, the idea of having different rules and culture on different islands, that anybody can start their own island and choose who joins them, and that we have a real diversity and that's gone really well. Um, you know, there, there's a, a, a main island, Elysium, which is, you know, which is quite large and has a bunch of rules, and there's also many, many small islands. And so that has gone really well. I think that there's significant differences between the rules on the different islands. The barrier to entry is low. People can easily switch. That's great. The other barrier, or the other access, is the, the movement towards this, this vision of truly testing out new laws for the week as as far from the current legal environment as is possible to get in this world, i.e. On the, on, in the high seas. And part of the idea of the Sacramento Delta was that it's physically connected to the ocean. So we thought, we'll learn to meet the challenges of, of boating on the Delta, then we'll move maybe to the Sacramento River, then we'll move into the Bay, which will be much higher visibility, mm-hmm. closer to a lot of people, also a lot more challenging. The north part of the bay especially has uh, has significant waves. And then maybe we'll move just offshore, so, you know, just outside uh, Half Moon Bay or outside the Golden Gate Bridge. And then we'll find a, uh, 
say, a, a reef or other protected place in international waters and, and hold sort of the, the true uh, high seas ephemeral there. And on that axis, well, I think people have done great at accumulating ships and platforms and experience uh, about, you know, we're much better at anchoring. People can do multi-point anchor systems of multiple platforms now. Uh, we're a lot better at that. The, the festival has not moved in 10 years from that initial location, and so it's not showing any signs of kind of progressing towards greater legal autonomy. Yeah. But to me, it seems like there are still learnings that can be taken from ephemeral each year. And I also got the sense that people, some people at least, really wanted the festival to go longer than just a week. With those two things, I felt like there was kind of a seed there was still like a seed that was intact of this seasteading ideal. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, going longer is is definitely an important axis of, of the goal of progressing from some kind of incremental experiment or festival to uh, a new full-time life. But I, I guess I, I question whether it's a worthy axis, uh, like right now where things are. To me, it seems like sort of comfortable and tempting to just stay longer, you know, in a place where you have basically zero legal autonomy. But, you know, to keep our eye on the prize, I think we really need to move towards being able to do something in the ocean. And realistically, like, I don't mean like that ephemeralers will invent some kind of brilliant breakwater or um, structure that can manage the waves. Although, you know, to touch on the this year's big seasteading story in Thailand, a group of seasteaders have uh, actually built out of concrete, a design that I suggested in that very first seasteading book and found it quite comfortable. Um, I think it's going to more be finding a, a reef which is below the water, so it's not doesn't belong to a country, but which provides a protected harbor, mm-hmm. someplace accessible to a lot of vessels, and then having people go there and be sort of in the protected waters um, and then trying out their, their new governments. But, you know, even with those protected waters, we have to progress from being able to set up, you know, 30 feet from land in, you know, 30 feet of water to being able to get those platforms, you know, at least 12, if not 200 miles from a port. Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask also, one of the themes of the conversations that I had with people when I visited Ephemeral was rules. Obviously, Elysium has a number of rules. It's the main island, so those rules are observed by a whole lot of people, and they are sort of at the heart, I think, of uh, of the festival to a certain extent. But then talking to the people on boats and islands around Elysium, everybody has their own ideas about what the rules should be for people who attend the festival, what the rules should be for people who visit their boat or visit their island, and that was just an interesting interplay for me to watch. Like it's this constant negotiation process of negotiating and compromising. And, um, and you told me, uh, for the, for the article that I wrote that rules are to ephemeral as art is to burning man. And I wondered if you could just unpack that a little bit. What did you mean by that? Well, first off, I love hearing your description, um, that sort of negotiation and compromise and, and constant discussion of, what the rules should be, and then most importantly, that there are different rules in different places. That's that's absolutely critical to the the entire philosophy of of competitive governance. Um, you know that is the that is the seasteading nature, and 
you know, to the degree that that's happening in ephemeral, it is, it is realizing the original vision. So I think that that's, that's, you know, that's super exciting. And yeah, what I mean by rules are to ephemeral as artist of Burning Man is that ephemeral, you know, it's not just Burning Man on the water. It's not like, oh, this is a festival about radical self-expression and self-reliance and, and art that happens to be in this different context, the water. It has this, this different nature, and the, the nature is that it's about playing with, uh, with rules and culture and having um, multiple sets of rules that are, you know, hopefully very different in close proximity and having the experiences of helping create rule systems and experience different rule systems and move, you know, during the week uh, to these different little floating villages, um, you know, that are very different because the whole idea of seasteading is that we need more diversity and experimentation with rules. Uh, We need small groups of people to be able to create new legal systems, whether, you know, cobbled together from the best practices they see around the world or copied Nowadays, from what works best in cryptocurrencies, where a lot of governance innovation is happening, or, you know, just written from scratch. And that's what we want to see more of. Um, and so, you know, there's a, uh, you know, I personally come from the political philosophy of anarcho-capitalism, um, which my dad helped to, helped to create. And people sometimes say, oh, you know, you're, you are an anarchist, that must mean that you want no rules or no cops. And it's, in truth, it's just the opposite. We think rules are so important that rather than just having one set of rules that everyone lives under, we, we think it's critical to have a bunch of different sets of rules with different pros and cons that are good to different people and that nurture different virtues. And, you know, so to me, hell is one world government, no matter what the laws are, even if it had, you know, whatever the closest to what everyone in the world would together choose, you know, to me, that's hell because it's vulnerable. If everyone does things the same way, then, then one mistake, one weakness, and, and everybody loses. So what's most important to me is seeing a lot of different regions that are, that are truly different, um, and that's the spirit of ephemeral. Different rules, different culture for different people, and getting to experience those differences in practice. Yeah, because you brought it up, I have a fun question here that I want to ask you, which is, what are some of the big rules that you have lived by or live by currently that you would like to change? It's hard to briefly answer that question because I <laughs> sort of feel like, you know, the rule set of the United States of America where I live is, is so far from my ideal that I want to pick out just one thing. And, you know, this is something where often with seasteading, um, I try to keep things on the meta level. Like we don't endorse a particular political system or a particular set of rules. Uh, because doing so can can distract people from the big idea, and the big idea is really it's not here's a utopia or like here's one set of rules that we think everybody sh- should follow. The entire idea is just we need to play with rules more. Like rules are, are it's, it should be an art, part of the critical infrastructure of our world, and it's like code. You can copy and remix laws and bring them from place to place in a way that you you know can't easily do with with buildings and, and cities and highways, um, you know, but yet we don't. We just use our locally evolved rules, and we have these terrible decision-making mechanisms, like democracy in America, where the government, you know, every couple of years collects, like, a few dozen bits of information from me about my preferences. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. Uh, and we now have half a century of Nobel Prize-winning economists, uh, 
on how democracy tends to produce laws that favor special interests over the masses, even though that's the kind of the opposite of its founding philosophy. Uh, and so I think that, yeah, the, that the meta rules are so bad, it's, it's hard to start a new country, and then the decision-making preferences within our country of these occasional elections, are they're, they're all so bad that I feel like much of the content of, of the laws is bad. Although I will, you know, give a shout-out to British common law and say that sort of inside those hundreds of thousands of pages of regulations, these general ideas of, uh, you know, of, of courts and contracts and, and those precedents, I think, are, are quite good. Yeah, you've brought up this analogy of the, like, sole engineer who is reworking the code to improve it a couple times. And that touches on something that I've been wondering about as I try to wrap my mind around basically the whole seasteading concept which is who is making these rules? Who is for, you know, a new island, let's say, that is getting underway, who is actually tasked with coming up with the rules? Yeah, I mean, I I do definitely support the the meta answer of, you know, different projects to try different things. But yeah, to make it more concrete, um, you know, I'll give some analogies. So, there's the democratic analogy, which is that the community of initial uh, citizens comes together and uses some collaborative decision-making process to create the initial rules. That's one way that it could happen. Uh, then there's the sort of the startup model, which is that a small group of founders comes together and their governance is, you know, sort of like the the, the prototype or the, you know, statement or initial product for a company that's that they're gonna gonna build it around um, and then there's the uh, the special economic zone model where you you have uh, say a developer who's going to hand things off to an operator they're going to create this real estate project maybe it's a port um, and you know they want the they want their real estate to be worth more and so they're going to look at uh, other Port projects around the world, what legal concessions they've gotten from governments, what seems to help them uh, in this particular country, what aspects of the legal system are holding them back. You know, often uh, developing countries have really high tariffs, for example, like um, Trump is trying to to bring back to the to the U.S. Uh, and those really really hold up economic development. And very often countries allow ports to to be an exception. And so there it's a process of the you know developer trying to trying to make money and negotiating with the government and with the anchor tenants and you know it it can be it can be any of these um, and there's not there's not one right answer um, you know what matters is that to me is that the the these zones that are being created have uh different laws than the host country. I'll give an example of kind of the first operating program, which is in Honduras. I was going to ask um, you, are, although, there, are there some seasteading success stories out there that we can look at as kind of case studies to understand how this might work? That's a great question, and the answer is that there are not, but that we are getting getting close. So we, we look at things like Dubai um, mm-hmm. and Hong Kong, which are government-sponsored, operated, and funded, but in both cases sort of specifically from the beginning, chose to have different laws than the area around them. In the case of Dubai, they wanted to create a financial center, and their Sharia-based legal system is particularly bad at financial regulation, and so they decided to 
look at best practices. They said, oh, British common law is better. They hired retired British judges and drew a circle in the sand and said, there is a different legal system in here. Um, and so the idea of, of seasteading in charter cities is to kind of scale that up to um, privately funded and operated, but government authorized zones. And the first program of this type is in Honduras. It's called the Zeta program for zones of economic development. Uh, there there are, have not been any authorized Zetas yet. Uh, I actually had the first uh, non-binding MOU back in 2012, but the program, which had started in 2010 with them changing their constitution, wasn't ready. But it's a really good uh, model program to look at to understand this stuff more concretely. So basically, they changed their constitution several times based on uh, based on Supreme Court feedback until the law passed muster to create a system where uh, someone can apply to the government for a zone, and the zone has to follow hun- the Honduran Constitution and the Honduran criminal law. But when they apply, they can negotiate for various areas of commercial law where they'll bring in best practices from other countries, and then the zones get to have an independent judiciary and independent law enforcement. They have to be approved by Congress and the president, and then after that they're regulated by a regulatory agency, and the the law specifies things like, you know, if there's a dispute between the zone and the country, how does that get adjudicated and all that. And so it's a really meaningful amount of autonomy that they're going to try out in these zones in order to bring investment and and create jobs, which is uh, getting to copy uh, parts of commercial law from other countries, you know, at the same time these zones are fully under Honduran sovereignty. They're under the Honduran constitution and Honduran criminal law, just trying out uh, some different commercial laws and, and having their own, uh, their own judges and police. And so it's a really, it's a really exciting program that's, you know, it's really advanced. I would be happy with, uh, you know, with countries doing something significantly more conservative than that right now. So, uh, that's an example of how these things can be structured in, in practice. Another another one is French Polynesia, where yeah, the Sea Setting Institute... Yeah, so we had an MOU. Their main interest in French Polynesia uh, is climate resilience, um, where rather than, say, uh, pure economic benefits. And the Sea Setting Institute ha- has an MOU to work with French Polynesia to, uh, to create a sea zone, which is basically like a special economic zone, but... but off the coast, uh, where we would float platforms that would have some legal differences from the rest of the country. And we did an environmental impact statement uh, and uh, economic benefit and, and drafted the laws. We did some of the kind of research that you typically do with a public-private partnership. Um, and it, it we spun off as a nonprofit. We don't really have the resources at Seasteading to manage a project like that. So we spun off a for-profit called Blue Frontiers, which then worked with French Polynesia, and it's kind of stalled out, and they're talking to other countries now. Um, so I don't know whether whether or not anything will happen, but it was uh, was a big step for us to have uh, to have an agreement with a with a government to explore working together. Yeah, it sounded like it was close to becoming something. Yeah, and I think it's. But these programs show that's really exciting is that these ideas are out there and governments are open to them. And look, when I started this stuff, you know, literally 20 years ago with a, a website on the idea for, for ephemerile, um, you know, the idea of ephemerile and seasteading was like, you know, governments on land are totally closed to any of this kind of experimentation. 
Um, there was a group called Laissez-Faire City, uh, based on the ideas of the book The Sovereign Individual and Ayn Rand back in the 90s that uh, got together a million dollars and put a full-page ad in The Economist and said, hey, we just want to have our own city. Will anybody work with us? We have money. And they just got crickets. And so that's why I was looking to these these other mechanisms like international waters and, and the ocean. But, you know, what we're seeing today in 2019 as we're you know, we're well into the 21st century as countries are realizing that they need to do these kinds of innovations and experiments to to succeed. And so that growing interest from countries is, you know, why I've now quit my job at Google and I'm, I'm working full-time with these projects. Yeah, that brings me to a question that I wanted to ask, which is, do you view this as like a scalable alternative to the, I don't know what you would call it, but the sort of system of sovereign nations around the world that we have right now? I, as I see it, sovereignty is fragmenting in the 21st century, um, and both fragmenting and becoming commoditized. In other words, countries are, rather than a country being a monolithic element, I mean, you know, just look at the large internet companies, for example. Like, they have significant power over information that would traditionally have been uh, held by the sovereign, just from technological changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, or look at Estonia's e-governance program or economic citizenship, as an example, where countries are essentially selling their citizenship. That's that's fragmenting. It's taking this this um, this piece of what a country does and and selling it. And so I I do I just see this as making the system more flexible instead of dividing everything up geographically into just you know 150 units that have these these rigid bodies of law that don't learn enough from each other and don't experiment. I just want to see a world where, uh, you know, that's more like more like software, where there people are regularly trying changes and, and rewrites and, and copying new things and using new languages and new modules, but then, you know, for safety, they're trying those out at a small scale, you know, letting people use them voluntarily and only scaling them up as they prove safe. And I think I think it's absolutely sustainable and, and scalable. Look, one of the reasons that, you know, I'm so optimistic today that this stuff is going to happen is that, you know, the, the trends, like whether it's technology or economic or social change, like whatever it is, this is the way that the world is, is going. Like the traditional nation state is just visibly every year kind of less monolithic. And I think that's really important because when you buy, you know, there's a reason that we don't uh, buy for example, like one service provider that gives us like all of our food, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and why you see the breakup of, of monopolies like Microsoft and, and its browser or, or long distance service is that bundling, like ha- like getting everything together in, in one unit is just really bad for innovation. Um, you have to be able to, to make experiments on, you know, your browser or your vegetables in order to move forward. And, and when co- when companies or countries give you an entire bundle at once and you have to take the whole thing, they just tend to do a, a crappy job of it. So what you're saying is that if in five or six years from now, we all see a press release that announces that Mark Zuckerberg has started some massive, has launched some big platform uh, off of the Pacific coast and it's available for like some massive retreat for long-term retreat for Facebook's highest shareholders or something, we shouldn't be surprised. 
Well, maybe. I mean, I definitely think that that large corporations actually operating these, uh, you know, is in the future. But I, I would more expect it to be, um, for example, like space. You can now do your do your voting and polling through Facebook on a on a regular basis, so that elected officials get more constant feedback, um, or that. Uh, let's see, who, say, Apple watches an app for municipal governance that manages parking tickets, business registration fees, and all of these things. So sort of, you know, these, uh, these traditional services of government, courts uh, and, and arbitration, um, that kind of move into the private sector and where, you know, different areas within the same country are using different providers. But I definitely see that at some point we'll get, uh, you know, corporate, States and that's uh, I know some people find that creepy. I'm kind of on the fence, but whether I'd like living in Apple Topia or Google Topia, uh, definitely not Facebook Topia or Netflix Topia. <laughs> um, but the idea is that these are these are alternatives that you you go to if you want, and if you don't like it, don't go there. And that's it's really core to our philosophy is that these things be opt in. Like we, it's wrong to change people's government out from under them. But it's also really bad if there aren't new governments that you can you can choose to go to. It's a really interesting idea. Well, I uh, I know that you have other stuff that you have going on, Patrick, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. But it's super fun to talk to you about this stuff. And it does kind of feel like some of these ideas could be right around the corner. So anyway, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, and I encourage anyone who finds these ideas of of experimenting with, with new legal systems and fragmenting sovereignty fun, that there's lots of stuff out there. There's the seasteading book. There's uh, Titus Gebel's book on free private cities. There's the old classic, How to Start Your Own Country by Erwin Strauss. Uh, and there's, you know, there, there are growing communities of people who are actually moving these things into the real world. And, of course, they're not going to look quite like you expect, but they are happening. So enjoy. All right. Take it easy, Patrick. All right. Thanks. Thanks very much again to Patry for making time to come on the podcast. For more information on his work, check out the Seasteading Institute at seasteading.org or follow him on Twitter at Patricimo. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. See you next time.